Hello listeners and welcome to the Afriwata podcast where we look to celebrate African history, people and culture by telling our story. As always, our hope is that it fills you with enough curiosity to go and do your own deeper research. Karibuni to any new listeners to the Afriwata world. We invite you to check out previous Afriwata episodes which can be found on this podcast platform. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today, we are headed to West Africa for part three. Yep, part three of the Wagadu Empire. A shout out to my West Africans out there. Afriwetu is back on your borders. And yes, part three. This is a first for us at Afriwetu, but man, it just had to be. Before we begin, please visit us on our socials. Our handle is at Afiwetu, where we shall be posting interesting facts, stories, updates, and links for further study for all you lovely people. But for now, sit back and enjoy the first of a part three. Now, this being as it is part three, I've said like like 10,000 times, you already have your bearings, right? And the maps are in front of you, looking at the location, tracing this ancient empire's reach, yes? Of course you do. But for those of you who've just joined us, please take out your map and just for your sake, here we go again. The empire was located to the north as it was in desert lands and to the south, the more grassland, forested areas of West Africa. In today's terms, you can trace the modern nations going clockwise, Senegal Eastern, Mauritania Southeastern, Mali Western and Guinea in the middle or the intersection of those, you will see the two rivers of Senegal and Isabel. And this is where we're going to be today. Now that you've all kind of forgiven Afriwetu for sneaking in a part three, it does also mean that for those who are just catching up, we need to fill them in on what's happened so far. I also promise this is the final episode on this empire. There is no part for honest. Okay, so what happened last time? Now, for those of you who haven't had a chance to listen to part one or two, don't stress, because you know that here at Afriwet, we love to just bring you into the fold and bring you up to speed. What I will do here is I will mesh the two parts as it's going to be a very, very brief summary and also to make sure that you go back and listen to part one and part two. So here goes. So one of the most striking things in any story of any civilization, kingdom, empire is the origins. And here, it was no different. And in fact, these origins are closely linked to what then become the religious practices of the empire, in that it's centered around Dinge Sise and his prodigy, the family drama, and then Bida, the great python. We also went to look at the origins and the history from the anthropological aspect, and then looked at society through the archaeological aspects. I mean, we became really, really smart. 
We then saw how the empire was governed. We met the rulers. And to complete the first two phases, we also checked out how this empire became an empire in terms of its expansion, how it conquered, and the cities that were within it. It is like two minutes, but honestly, it was such a dope journey. Please go check out the first two parts. But first, make sure you listen to this one before you go there. So now that we are all together and all caught up, um, before we head into the meat of this part and to look at the empire's trade, economy, and close off with the demise, by the way, there's a lot under those headings, I tell you, I think now would be a good time to again set some context, similar to what we did in parts one and part two. So as we heard in part one, there's a great deal of emphasis placed on Arab writings as to not just the empire's workings, but a heck of a lot more value placed on the interpretation of the empire's demise, which at least for Afriwetu was really skewed, especially by later historians. But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves and jump to that. Don't worry, I'm not ending the episode now. One of the most prolific sources was Al-Bakri, who wrote in the 11th century and lived in Spain. Having actually never been on the continent, he based a lot of his information on interviews of the Muslim traders, as well as extensive writings by Arabs in the region in question. I pull out his name as it is from he from whom a lot of the references to the Wagadu is used, including here at Afriwetu. Since the study of this empire has progressed, a lot. We have the privilege of taking in history as recorded by the descendants of the empire, rich in the nuance and with a healthy respect for their ancestors. This episode and the last two are but a drop in the ocean of information. So please go and do your own deeper research. But not yet. First, let me whet your appetite as we head into part three and look at the final sections for this empire. Starting with trade. <laughs> Now, to say this empire was a powerhouse is really an understatement. Actually, it is the understatement of the century. It was one of the major powerhouses in West Africa. And as one of the legs of this foundation of its strength and foundation is in its dominance in trade, let's just get some general context as well. From around the 6th century, we see the growth of this empire's wealth dominating the West African routes as it had started to take control of the trade routes between Northern and Southern Africa, as well as the area of the Niger River's upper valley. They understood the value of what they had and to secure the logistics and their assets, they placed armies to patrol and protect the routes that passed through their territories. The rulers profited heavily from these routes, not just from the trade, but also the taxes. Each trader was required to pay a special tax on their goods that they brought in and that they took out. Think double taxation. 
And speaking of taxes, the empire was also kept wealthy through the internal economic activities, which brings us to the economy. The empire had within its borders its own wealth generating assets from gold, which was what many knew it for, as well as other valuable metals like iron, copper, just part of its thriving mining industry. The people were very skilled in metallurgy and made not just weapons, but also agricultural, hunting and general industrial tools. They hunted for hides to make leather goods for use and trade. The economy placed a heavy emphasis on agriculture because of their farming tools. They had actually had very advanced ones for food production in the region, which they both consumed and traded. Which leads us nicely to the bigger money maker, trade. So with trade, there are so many ways we could splice this, considering how much there is to study out there. The empire traded from a place of strategy and strength, leveraging on its own valuable assets of goods and services, those which were within its borders and what it gained from the traders who crossed through the lands. For services, we already saw the skills of the blacksmiths. You also found highly skilled tanners working with the hides and leather to create valuable materials. And for you to understand how high the quality was, to this date, you can find some remnants of these pieces across modern Sahara. In addition, the empire had artisans who'd worked on other materials such as wooden cloths to make statuettes and masks, as well as ornaments and jewelry, bags, baskets, you name it, they had it. The goods they traded included iron, copper, ivory, gold, salt, clay, and from the farms they had kola nuts, fish, spices, fruits, dates, and many more. And with livestock, they had the mighty camel, which you'll hear a little bit more about later. For the purposes of this episode, we shall look at gold and salt as a key goods used in trade. And for the simple reason is that the close correlation between the two is not in just their value, but in also how they were traded. So let's start with a very precious metal, gold. The gold originated from the mines in the Wangara region and the fields of Bambuk, where one would also find iron ore. The royals controlled the gold trade and were known to keep their own stock of nuggets exclusive to them. The people, the subjects, were allowed to keep gold dust which they then used to trade with or as currency. The Arab traders were the main consumers of this metal and the trade was mostly done through the silent barter system. Afriwatu, you will remember we studied this back with the Mali and Songhai empires. We shall come back to this in a minute. By virtue of the ownership of the gold in the form of nuggets and the control of the source through access to the mines, this ensured that the sub-Saharan trade of this metal, which flowed through the empire, worked to the royal's advantage, obviously. They would control the commodities market of the day by monitoring and moderating the value of the gold and ensuring that not a lot was in circulation in the market. They were able to keep this control as the location of the gold mines were kept secret. We saw the same thing with the Mapumbungwe, Great Zimbabwe and Mutapa civilizations that Afriwatu covered in season 1, episodes 3, 5 and 7 respectively. But back to the silent barter system. For those of you who are yet to listen to the Mali and Songhai episodes, see the internal plug moment again. Here's a very brief summary. 
The merchants would bring their wares to specific locations and place them there. Once they left, the African gold traders would then leave what was their offer in gold for the wares at the specified place and leave. The foreign merchants would come back and if they agreed to the price, they would take the gold. If not, they would leave it untouched and this would then signal to the gold traders that they would need to increase the offer. On and on this would go until agreed. Not a word exchanged, hence silent barter. Now in all this, one of the most precious commodities that gold was used for and the price was significant was salt. See how we tied that in? Salt was a very valuable commodity and literally worth its weight in gold. It was brought in by traders' caravans from Northern Africa who had as easy access to it found as it was from the rock salt deposits. In the context of the silent barter system, the traders brought it down south and would leave slabs of salt and the miners left their gold price. Historic records show that the exchange rate was like a slab of salt was worth about 300 dinars, equivalent of a gold coin which weighed about an eighth of an ounce. On top of the money in the trade of gold for salt, the empire also made its wealth from the tax it placed on this commodity. So, thus whereas the tax on gold was one dinar on imports, it was two dinars on salt, according to al-Bakri. In other records, it was stated that a gold dinar was payable as tax for imported salt. So a donkey load, imported salt, which is a donkey load, and two for that same load when it was being exported. So as we can see, it was really heavily taxed. And now we have a flavor of the trade and economy. See what I did there? Let's get into the logistics and how the empire maximized on its location. The empire became wealthy from the lucrative trade of luxury and everyday goods as well as from the trading of indentured men and women. By the 800s, it was thriving from the sub-Saharan trade routes that crossed through its borders. Over time, as it expanded in territory and influence, the rulers took full control and monopolized the trade, furthering their riches. The empire taxed not only the goods that were part of its own local exports and imports, it also placed a tax on everything that passed through its borders, which was a hugely significant chunk of the Trans-Saharan trade. Its location led to this sitting as it were connected the interior, the coastline and the southern parts of the continent, thus where most of the lucrative trade and merchants passed. So if you opened up a map and looked at that route, we're talking about moving from down south, the savannah heading up to the Mediterranean coastline way up north, and the route that then cuts across from northeast Africa, Egypt, to the northwest, the Maghreb desert. I mean, basically, if you're at the center of that, you have wealth coming in from all angles, right? Then with the very precarious nature of the Sahara, it's called unforgiving for a reason, meant that travelers needed to find safe locations to rest and recuperate for them and their caravans. And the empire provided just that. I'll quote from the geographer Yakut al-Hamawi, who was a freed slave of, who became a Muslim and of Greek origin and described Ghana's commercial position. And this was as quoted in um, one of the texts I read by Hopkins. Merchants meet in Ghana 
and from there one enters the arid waste towards the land of gold. Were it not for Ghana, this journey would be impossible because the land of gold is a place isolated from the west in the land of the Sudan. Taking control from the Arab merchants, using their army to protect the routes and leveraging on their use of camels to trade far and wide. We mentioned these ships of the desert earlier, the camels. The Soninke used these camels for their own means of trade and transport and their use was a game changer for the Wagadu and the traders across the Sahara and the Sahel. The Soninke in particular used camels to dominate trade which was easy to do as camels are able to withstand the very rough and arid desert conditions, lasting for days as they can without food or water whilst carrying heavy loads. Think at least, and I checked this, 400 kilos, which they carried on their feet, which were built to walk on the slippery and difficult sands. That majestic animal is no joke. So all in all, from everything we have heard over the past two episodes, from its expansion, rulers, trade and wealth, how and what would cause the Wagadu to fall, right? Well, let's take a look. My Afriwatu, before launching into this final section, just wanted to share the journey taken to get here. In the course of study of this empire's demise, honestly, I went down the rabbit hole of the Amoravid invasion that is claimed to have been the main and in some texts, almost the singular cause of its downfall. And trust me, just try searching and this is the first and sometimes only attributable activity you will find. But, because you're all smart, when you scratch the surface and you look deeper, you'll find, as much as I did, a much more layered story and a critique of the part the Almoravid conflicts played. Historians who are, honestly, much, much, much smarter than me from this region have provided great analysis, so I would try to replicate them here, but I do ask you to go and read up on them. What I can share very briefly is that overall the evidence of the Almoravid invasion and its importance is based on, and I quote, scant evidence. And why is this said to be the case? Well, considering an empire of this magnitude, importance and sheer size, there should be reams and reams of stories documented in some way of its being defeated by any civilization or force, whether written or even in the oral history. Instead, what is found is little to no mention of this in text, even from the Arab writers of old, who considering this would have been a great tale for the Muslim faithful, was barely mentioned until much later. Curious, no? Well, I'll leave this here and let's just go back to have a look at the demise. It's been a long journey to get here, and we have made a friend along the way, our old woman. At this point, I think it's only right we ask her her name, right? She tells us it's Kumani, which also is said to mean destiny. She has also traveled through time. 
never aging, but always old. But now Kumani looks worn and tired. We ask her, what is wrong? And she tells us the tale with a huge sigh. We are lost. We are doomed. We are destroyed. Bida has been slain. Beheaded by the ignorance and foolishness of young love. The name, some call him Mama Du Sarole. Some say Mama Di Soko. Some say Mama Di Sefanankote. Will be forever remembered as one who has cursed us and our people. <sighs> she collects herself and starts at the beginning. As you know, my friends, every full cycle of the harvest, we send our offering and virgin sacrifice to Bida. Wagadu's key representatives from all the provinces gather and on rotation they offer a virgin from their lands. It is the highest honor to be selected. It's this sacrifice in particular that Bida was very clear on to ensure our prosperity and the unity of the empire. You remember, yes, we spoke about this. We nod, yes, we remember, especially the bit about the virgin sacrifice. Well, she continues, this annual season, everything was going as planned. Of course, we had heard the rumors and that there was resistance to this, with this particular virgin, as she was said to be betrothed to a man of noble birth, Mamadou. It's not new, the resistance. I mean, what is done is done. That is the way. Anyway, it gets to the ceremony. And then, lo, from nowhere, there is a flash of a sword and blood and screaming and chaos. I fall down, knocked down by the people running around. And as I try and I struggle to get up, I see to my horror, one of Bida's heads is rolling on the ground. His headless body thriving on the floor. There's wailing and shouts to capture the young noble, but he's too fast and he disappears. And then Bida's spirit came forth and he cursed our lands and he has taken our access to the gold and the rains. <sighs> it's all so sudden. <sighs> I have just gathered myself. I've just come from a meeting with the chiefs and it has been agreed that we must find this young man. We hear he has fled to his mother's home down south. One of his kin has been asked to lead the search, being as it is he who is as skilled on horseback, just like Mama do. But nevertheless, even then, we are ruined. Our empire will not survive this. And with her head down, she walks away into the clouds, having left us back in our own realm. Now, it's worth saying that indeed one of the major factors of the empire's decline was a severe drought and then famine that hit it, turning the area into a desert and the Soninke people were forced to disperse. By the 12th century, there was still an abundance of livestock and farming that took place in the region, which was then halted by this turn of the climate. Then on top of the drought, 
there was civil war within the empire and good old-fashioned competition of trade routes in the region. New civilizations had started to flex from the Soso Kingdom and its successor, the Mali Empire, from the Soso Kingdom from about 1180 to 1235, and the Mali Empire picking up from it from about 1240 to 1645. The Almoravids come into play around 1060s and were engaged in a number of battles with the various elements of the empire over decades. The Almoravids traced their roots to Ibn Yashin and his two protégés, Yahya Ibn Omar and Abu Bakr. They were boosted as they were by the Sanhaja people of the desert. Remember them from part one of this empire? I did say they'll be back with a vengeance and here we are. So what had happened is that the Sanhaja and the Empire had history, and one particular part of that plays into the Almoravid story, revolving around the commercial city of Awagdugust. This city, which had previously been controlled by and was a source of much wealth to the Sanhaja, but they then lost control to the Empire in the 10th century, basically going from collecting tribute to paying it. I mean, that's a tough pill to take, right? But then comes help in the form of the Almoravids and the Berber communities. And by 1056, they had regained the city. But the story doesn't end there. Later on in 1076, being the oft-quoted year under the Almoravids' leader was Abu Bakr. We see reports of a clash between them and the empire when the Wagadu is already in a slow and gradual decline. The invaders took advantage of this weakness. Abu Bakr actually died fighting in a revolt in 1087, and he left behind six of his male relatives, each one fighting to be his successor. This infighting actually saw the Almoravids lose any advantage they had, and the Wagadu regained a level of political and commercial dominance by 1100. But this was a hollow victory, as the empire was much weaker and did not get back to its former glory. It had already been experiencing infighting and civil war which saw weakened central government. Tributary chiefs took advantage of this and declared their independence without fear. Other Soninke people left and migrated south to form or join other polities. And then, with the blood drawn, the newer powers in the region from the neighbors like the Soso, led by Sumunguru Kante, made their advance. It was a lot that was going on. The years between 1200 and 1240 were not great. And this was the downfall season for the Soninke Empire. From the Soso taking control of the territory, those who did not flee or fall during this takeover found trade had dried up as the merchants moved their bases for cities like Walata. The Soso kingdom was relatively short-lived, and by 1240, Sundiata Keita, the famed leader of none other than one of the world's best-known empires, the Mali Empire, had absorbed it and all remnants of Wagadu. And by the turn of the 13th century, the empire had truly fallen. Asro <laughs> 
So, what else was going on in the world at this time? Then we're talking about the period between 800 AD and 1200 AD. So around the 9th century, the Edo people of what is now southeastern Nigeria developed bronze casts of humans, animals, and legendary creatures. In 802, the Jayavarman II of the Kaima people in Cambodia finds the Kema Empire and establishes a dynasty. The Tukolo settle in the Senegal River Valley. They were influential in the spread of Islam to West Africa and the medieval era, during the medieval era. The Christian Nubian kingdom reaches its peak of prosperity and military power. In 948, the Nri kingdom is now in what is now southeastern Nigeria begins. And in that same period, the golden age of the ancestral Pueblans, the Pueblo, the second era begins. So as we bring it home, when I started the research of this empire, I'll be honest, I had a certain perception of how it would go. But as usual, our ancestors proved me wrong, which to be fair, as I said before, as an African, your elders are always right. The reason why I and others in this space labor on this space is because sadly having to prove that the empire was originally a fully black African empire was something previous and much smarter historians have had to do. So it is only right that we reinforce and highlight their work. We should never take for granted those who have had to fight the battles we today take for granted in terms of just quoting them because it's obvious they have made our lives so much easier. So I just wanted to take a moment to say thank you to those who make our studying of African history better and more accessible. And to you, my Afriwatu, as usual, I encourage you to do your own deeper research. At the beginning, in part one, I emphasized the importance of identity through a name and chose to keep the Soninke name of Wagadu as opposed to Ghana. But as we conclude this magnificent empire, I want to revisit that name for a moment. The name Ghana, which meant warrior king, was in 1957 adopted by the first sub-Saharan African nation to reclaim its independence from the clutches of the colonizers. And this was done to remember and honor this empire. I would like to end our visit to Awagadu Empire with the words of Jelly Baba Sisoko, as for me, what I took from what he said, I feel is so apt, especially when you think of our ancestors, our different African cultures, and the beauty that is in our oral storytelling heritage. A story that is told for a long time and never written down may be told in many ways. Take from that what you will. And until next time, Mubarikiwe! Yeah, 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 yeah.